0: All right, let me run through some things that are coming up in our church fairly quickly and then we'll get into today's session. Ladies, this Friday at 7 is the annual Christmas social and we'd like to know how many of you are coming and today's the last day for you to let us know that. So if you haven't registered, then please do so. And if you're inviting some folks, we need to know about them also. So uh, give their names at the information center out in the lobby. And then the next day, this coming Saturday at 9 o'clock, men, is a breakfast in in this room. You're all invited to come for that. And then two weeks from tonight is our annual adult Christmas fellowship. And there's a paragraph in the program for what we ask you to bring for that. As far as entertainment for the night, there's uh, ugliest sweater, craziest socks, craziest hat. Uh, But also we have a white elephant gift exchange. So bring a uh, kind of a gag gift that you wrap. You don't put your name on it, but you do wrap it. And you do bring one of those for each person, not... Hey, is it one per couple? Per person. Okay. Yeah, one for each person, not per couple. So if you're coming as a couple, bring two. And then on January the 3rd, the first four Sundays of January, starting on the 3rd, uh, we will have our Newcomers Orientation. Those of you that are new to our church, uh, that is for you. It's for information about our church and where we've come from and what we believe Mm -hmm. and what we hope to accomplish in the future. It's to help you make a decision as to whether or not this is where God would have you to grow and serve. It doesn't obligate you in any way. We don't hassle you in any way after the class is done. Uh, But it is four weeks of information that I think will be very helpful to you. And it's during this hour, it's in one of the adult classrooms right across the hallway out that door. I lead that, and those of you that have never taken it, I would love to have you as part of that. So mark that on your calendars, January the 3rd. All right, let me review a little bit as to what we have covered in our series, Marriage Matters, Extraordinary Change Through Ordinary Moments. We have seen that relationship in general, not just marriage, but relationship in general, is for the purpose of discipleship. And a disciple is a learner or a follower in the Bible. And God gives us relationships with one another in order for us to help one another in the process of learning of Christ and following Christ. So that's why I say relationship is for discipleship. But the marriage relationship in particular is, of course, the most intimate of all human relationships. And so I define the purpose of marriage as each helping the other to become more like Christ. Marriage is for the purpose of each spouse helping the other to become more like Christ. Now, when we say more like Christ, that means... That more and more we evidence the character of Christ. So when we talk about becoming more like Christ, what we mean is in our, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions, we are exhibiting the character qualities of Christ. And marriage is for the purpose of each spouse helping the other to increasingly do that. So Christ's character is what informs then our behavior. Christ's character of truth. Let me just give you a few examples. So if God is is always truthful, then that character quality of, of God is going to inform our communication with each other. Communication is a huge issue in relationships, certainly a huge issue in marriage. And if we if we are pursuing emulating the character of Christ in our marriage relationship, then it is of necessity going to have to be one characterized by true communication, honest communication. Christ is merciful. God is merciful. And so in our marriages, when there is is conflict, uh, we are going to be people who are characterized by a willingness to forgive, just as God is merciful to us and that God forgives us. God God is love. And so as God loves, it means biblically that he does what's in the best interest of another. So a marriage relationship that is emulating the character of Jesus is going to be one in which each sacrifices for the benefit of the other. Love then in that relationship is not going to be, as the world defines it, as a kind of 50-50, you do your piece and I'll do my piece if you stop doing your piece to the extent I think you should, then I'm going to stop doing my piece, and then we'll have this kind of war going on. No, I do my piece because my ultimate objective is for me to become like Christ, and I want to help you to do that as well. Of course, I can't force that on another person, but whether you do or not, I am still going to be selfless, lovingly selfless toward you. And I'm going to honor you rather than manipulate you. Now you could go on and on about that then. You could list the character qualities of God that are to, are what it means to become more like Jesus and then think of ways that that shows up in the marriage relationship, how it exhibits itself in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. But how does that all apply to sex? I mean, I get up here and I say, Marriage is for the, relate, the purpose of each spouse helping the other to become more like Jesus. And then you go, and then we go, well, where does sex fit into that? Good luck with that, Pastor. <laughs> and that's, that's a part of what today's message is about. You see it at the top of page 53, building intimacy. But this issue of the sexual relationship in marriage often gets very awkward for Christians because we don't think about how the character of God is emulated in the sexual relationship. And it is a testament to our perversity, our sinfulness, that we think of the sexual relationship as something separate from the overarching purpose that God has for marriage. We think of it as something that's sort of off-limits. So I want to make the case that not only is it not off-limits, but it is something just like the other areas that we've looked at, communication and conflict resolution, that in those things we are seeking to emulate the character, character of God. Same thing is true in sex. It gets awkward for us, but it really should not. You all know that when God created the first man and the first woman, creates them male and female, and then he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. So at the very beginning of the Bible, the uh, very first chapter of the Bible, God commands them to be fruitful and to multiply. And so God was the one who, who created sex, and one of the purposes for which he created it was procreation was for them to be able to multiply a godly legacy. So now this issue of my purpose in marriage can be expanded to our purpose in parenting. If the purpose of marriage is for each to help the other become more like Christ, the purpose of parenting is for us to have more people who become more like Christ. My objective with my children is that they become more like Christ. So one of the reasons for which God gave the gift of sex was procreation, be fruitful and multiply. And if you don't read your Bible further, you might conclude that that's the only reason for which God gave it, is the ability to to have children. And you might conclude that because, as I say, we have so uh, perversed God's good gift That we only think of it in kind of dirty ways. And there is so much sordid sex in the Bible. There's David with Bathsheba committing adultery. Uh, In the first part of your Bible, you have the kings of Israel taking to themselves wives and concubines. And so you see that and you think, God gave this for the purpose of, of procreation and that's all it's all it's for. And when you get out outside the bounds of that, things go haywire. And so in church history, many have concluded that. That sex is only for the purpose of having children. But you would have to read further in your Bible. And one place you would have to read is in First Corinthians 7. If you have your Bible, you can take a look at that. If not, I'll just read. Just listen as I read. But 1 Corinthians 7 starts in verse 1 this way. Now for the matters you wrote about. And if you have uh, an NIV in front of you, you see that after that phrase, it has a colon. Now for the matters you wrote about, colon. So some from the church in Corinth, to whom 1 Corinthians was a letter sent to them, some of them had apparently written to Paul about matters that they were having difficulty with in fact as you read through this as you read through this book you find that right at the very beginning in the very first chapter chapter 1 and verse 10 uh, Paul who wrote it says I'm writing you because some from the household of Chloe have told me that there are dissensions and factions among you And the first several chapters of the letter deal with these factions and these dissensions. So as you wonder, why did Paul write a letter like the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians? One part of the answer to that is in the very first chapter. Some people from the house of Chloe said, we've got a problem with dissension. And he addresses that. But then in addition to those opening chapters, when it comes to chapter 7 now, he says, now for the matters you wrote about So he had two sources of information, apparently, about what was going on in Corinth. One, the household of Chloe said, here's what's going on, we're a mess. And then secondly, someone wrote to them. Now for the matters you wrote about, colon. And then he goes on to speak about about marriage. And in verse 2 says, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now notice verse 5. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time. So verse 5 is saying that for a wife to withhold herself from her husband or a husband from his wife would be a defrauding. Some, some translations have that. Defrauding or depriving. Now that's not then just for procreation. That the body of the one is, is made for the other. And so here in 1 Corinthians 7, you see that sex is not only for procreation, but it's also for pleasure. For pleasure. 1 Corinthians seven five. And, if you need any further proof of that, there's the Song of Solomon in the first part of your Bible. And the Song of Solomon is uh, so direct that it's very hard to have that as one of your public scripture readings on Sunday morning. So if you've ever gone through wandered into the Song of Solomon, you will see that God did not intend sex only for procreation, but rather for pleasure as, as well. And just as an aside, just as an aside, the existence of books in the Bible like Song of Solomon have created problems for Christians throughout history because of what I said. We have a hard time thinking in proper ways about even good things that God has made because of how a fallen world has Uh, has distorted them. But, But they're in the Bible. A book like the Song of Solomon is in the Bible. And what it says about the pleasure of sex is contained within the context of the whole Bible and the character of God. In other words, it's not just gratuitous sex, but rather it's for a good purpose to instruct us for our good. And that means, guys and gals, we have to get away from the idea of counting swear words and allusions to sex in stuff that we that we watch as the means for determining whether or not I should I should watch it. Did you know that? Counting how many swear words isn't gonna help. Look, if you counted if you counted how many violent scenes there are in the Bible, what, what do you think the Bible would be rated? Think about in the first part of your Bible, all of the debauchery that's that's listed there. All of the rapes. So if you take the approach that says I'm going to count these things, and if these things are there, I'm not going to I'm not going to read it, then you can't read the Bible. So that's a false approach. Instead, what you have to look at is the context in which that is presented. And that's exactly what happens in Scripture. There's a context of the character of God and the overall teaching of Scripture that doesn't do that gratuitously. It doesn't glorify that. But it presents it really and honestly. And that's how you should evaluate then the choices that you make. Is this being presented real and honest or is it gratuitous and glorified? All right, off of that. So how do we apply the character of God then to sex that is for the purposes of procreation and for for pleasure? After all, sex was God's idea and it's God's good gift to married couples. But the Bible doesn't give us a a how-to on what comes naturally. Instead... Hear this. Good sex, according to the Bible, begins with good relationship. According to this rubric that we've been using, that the purpose for our relationships and all things is for us to be, to glorify God, to emulate His character. That means becoming like Jesus. Marriage then is for the purpose of each helping the other to conform to the image of Christ. If that's the case then, the character of Christ applies in this relationship. And the more we cultivate our good relationship, the more now that should evidence itself in the physical relationship. So how does the character of Christ apply to that? Just here's a a couple of ways. Think about the trust that we are instructed to have in God and His character. God is trustworthy. God is worthy of our trust. In order to have a proper sex life, each party has to trust the other. Each party needs to be trustworthy. For a person to open up his or herself in their marriage relationship, in a sexual relationship, they, they are to do that in the context of of trust in the other party. Now, you could think about what a lack of trust could do in that relationship. It be devastating. A person could harm you, literally harm you physically. A person could demean you. I'm trying to think how many years this would have been. 25 years ago, perhaps, when I was working my computer job. I met a guy my age, so we were both about 25, and in our mid-20s. And um, he, had, he was newly married. I'd been married for three years at that point, And he was talking about struggles that he was having in his marriage. And we were in the parking lot after work, And I remember him weeping because his wife had had sexual partners prior to marriage and she compared him to them unfavorably. How demeaning, right? So in order for there to be a proper physical relationship between a husband and wife... One of the character qualities of Christ that has to be there is you're trustworthy. I can trust you and entrust myself to you. Another one is acceptance. The Bible tells us in Romans 14 to accept one another just as God accepts us. So this kind of acceptance leads and trust lead to safety and security in the physical relationship of marriage. And that's why on page 53, then, we begin this way. Intimacy requires safety and understanding. So a lesson, a biblical lesson, a Christian lesson on sex doesn't start with the physical act of sex. But rather it starts with the relationship of which that is to be an expression. Intimacy requires safety and understanding. The Bible describes our relationship with God as one of intimacy. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you, Lord, know it completely. The Bible tells us that God has called us into fellowship into an intimate relationship with himself. And then notice Psalm 62. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Now, in that passage, Psalm 62, notice the use of the word my and how many times that happens. This is this is my God and indicating this is a relationship of intimacy between the psalmist and God. So God has that kind of relationship with us. And because of that kind of relationship with us, then we can open up to God because God is trustworthy And going to the throne of God and being in the presence of God is a safe place. But it starts with God being a trustworthy and accepting God. Middle of page 53. Intimacy is about more than sharing things your spouse may not know. It's also about sharing things that both of you already do know. Our relationship with God provides an example of how entrusting another with what he or she already knows is an important part of intimacy. God reveals himself to us. In turn, he asks us to reveal ourselves to him. Obviously, we need him to reveal himself to us. If he didn't choose to reveal himself to us, it would be impossible for us to know him. But it seems odd that God would ask us to reveal ourselves to him. After all, he knows absolutely everything about us. In fact, He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. So what's the point of of talking to God when He knows what you're going to say before you say it? Nevertheless, God does ask us to pray. And not just to produce a long laundry list of our wants and needs, but to actively share our deepest thoughts and concerns with Him. Again, look at verse 8 of Psalm 62, just above. Pour out your hearts to Him. The Bible says and many of the psalms consist of the heartfelt cries of joy, anguish, fear, terror, anger and dismay of God's people. These heartfelt cries weren't shared once and forgotten, but they echo through the centuries as God's people, both in the past and in the present, pour out their hearts to God. Now, get this. God doesn't gain insight or understanding from the psalms or from our personal cries. So what's the point? Our relationship with God isn't about telling him something new. It's about entrusting him with what's important to us and finding that he cares and even delights in it. Now, the illustration of a mom interacting with her son at the bottom of page 53. So that illustration is uh, what I saw my wife do with our daughters and any good mom especially, but dads as well. When their child comes home from school, they ask them questions. So, who did you see today? And what did you do today? And the same and, and day after day, the same kinds of answers. And what was always amazing to me as I watched Kim go through this routine with our girls when they were little, is how Kim was. Absolutely delighted to hear the same thing from the girls every day. And that made those girls feel like they were the center of our world. And other than God, guess what? They were and are. But that was looking them in the eye and caring about what they're what they're saying, even though they're saying the same thing. Over and over again. Now, I'm going to mention Kimmy one other time, last time today. But I've always been fascinated when Kim is around little kids and how they are... She's like a magnet for these little ones. She was that to our daughters, and she now watches five days a week uh, two of her great nieces. They're the same age apart as Lainey and Annie, and it's Lainey and Annie all over again. And these... The littlest one, Isabel, just chases Kim around. If Kim tries to walk away, she chases her around. She's grabbing her leg. She wants to be around Kim all the time. And I one time asked her, what is the deal with you? <laughs> These kids, you know, when our daughters were little, they were so attached to mom, you know, I'd come home and they would have this look like, who is he? And my, my role for the first several years of their life was I was just this dude who kind of came home, <laughs> took out the garbage, you know, paid the bills. They didn't know that. But, and it wasn't until, you know, they were three or so that they really started to appreciate, okay, you're a part of this thing too. But I asked him that, and then she says this to me. She says, I pay attention to them. That was what she said. I pay attention to them. And I've watched over the years then, since she told me that, I've watched over the years that she's done that. And I see her with these two little great nieces and she's sitting there on the floor with a coloring book down there coloring with them. And they're messing the thing up and then tearing it out and giving it to her and it's the greatest prize she's ever gotten. And... It's the same thing over and over again. But it's establishing a safety, a trust, an understanding that this person cares about me. And once I know this person cares about me, now I can open myself up to this person. Top of page 54. Our hearts and our relationship can get lost in the details. We become household managers rather than friends and lovers. What you think and feel about the details of your life are critical to really knowing and being intimate with your spouse. But realize, too, that intimacy isn't just about listening for something new. It means being interested in and expressing concern about what you've heard countless times before remembering that it's been repeated countless times, now get this, because it's important to your spouse. So before you roll your eyes and remind your spouse that she's telling you the same thing you heard yesterday, remind yourself that your spouse is entrusting you with something that he or she finds important. Delight in the fact that you're being entrusted again and again with the important matter of your spouse's heart. And that's why I said good sex is founded on good relationship. That this is a person that I can entrust myself to, and now in the, most, in the most revealing and intimate way. So intimacy requires safety and understanding, and then also, page 54, it requires love and acceptance. In the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, These four verses are often read at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If you're in a relationship with someone for whom that is a profile, now this is a person that I know is willing to do what is in my best interest in all circumstances. And therefore, I can open myself up to that person. And then Romans 15, Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Building trust in a relationship requires you to grow in your trust of God. Otherwise, you'll not be willing to risk revealing yourself, all right? So you see that? If you're going to have a mutually satisfying marital relationship, then you're going to have both parties engaging in this. But as I said earlier, you can't control what the other party does. And it may be that one party is growing, one of the spouses is growing at a rate that is faster than the other. So you buy all of this. I have to be a person who is trustworthy. I have to communicate that what matters to you matters to me. And you can entrust to me the most intimate matters of your heart. And I will treat them in this loving way. And I will not abuse what you tell me or what you do with me in any way. I may do that, but they may not be doing that at the the same rate. And so are you going to wait for them to become completely trustworthy before you have an intimate relationship with them? No, you don't have to wait because building trust in a relationship requires you to grow in your trust with God. Otherwise, you'll not be willing to risk revealing yourself. To put it another way, you'll be willing to take that risk because you know that God is in it and you trust God to honor your obedience in the relationship. Further, expressing love and acceptance to your spouse will require God's grace to help you remember that you're the undeserving recipient of God's love and acceptance. We don't earn God's love and acceptance, and we should not require our spouses to earn ours. Now, if you'll turn to page 55, this is the first time in our series that I've gone into the homework section. But the reason I have is because there are portions of the homework section that are didactic, that are teaching uh, sections. And I want to point some of those out, and then I want to encourage you to do the homework as I've done each week. But on page 55, third paragraph that starts with working through problems of intimacy can be difficult for many reasons. For one, intimacy often seems to be more of an experience than a choice or behavior. It's hard to do intimacy. It seems to just happen or not happen. How do you control or change something as seemingly wild and unpredictable as intimacy? Intimacy often comes as a surprise. One evening, completely unplanned, you end up sitting on the floor with your spouse, looking at old photos, reminiscing, and falling in love all over again. On another evening, you hire a babysitter, go out to your favorite restaurant, and sit in awkward silence with no idea what to say. Much of what what we've been considering and developing are elements of intimacy. Honesty, acceptance, getting to know each other better, being willing to share your heart. But here we want to focus on the physical aspect of intimacy. And there are two critical ingredients. Our safety and understanding. But they take effort in order to create them. If you think carefully about how God offers both as he relates to us, it can help us take specific steps toward offering them to one another in marriage. And then you've got some instructions for how to do that. Now if you'll look at page 56. Top of page 56, sex and and intimacy. Sex can seem mysterious. One spouse wants to have sex more than the other. One spouse is more adventurous than the other. One spouse enjoys prolonged foreplay, the other doesn't. No one asks for these preferences. Are preferences problems to be solved? Who's to say one spouse's preferences are right and the others are wrong? And sex is a subset of intimacy, a particular form of intimacy reserved by God for the most intimate of all human relationships marriage. And as we'll see, just as Christ is central to our understanding of marriage, he's also central to our understanding of sex. God intended sex between his image bearers to take place in marriage. The one flesh relationship of marriage described in Genesis 2 is both a picture of an inner connection, a spiritual and psychological intimacy, and a physical connection. Adam and Eve were created to become one at every level. Marriage and sex were designed to go together. And marriage was created so we could fully image God in the world. Now, notice this. To be accurate image bearers, we need to exist in relationships of commitment and love. Now, just stop there. Why do we need to exist in relationships of commitment and love to accurately reflect God? Because that's what he is, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in an eternal relationship of commitment and love. And so if we're going to accurately reflect God back to God, we have to be in those kinds of relationships, Jesus is the image of God, and his relationship with us, his church, is a model we're to follow. Marriage in particular mirrors Jesus' relationship with us in unique ways. It's a lifelong relationship based on a promise of love and grace that creates oneness. Now, you see these two bold bold type sentences. I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on those in our final moments. But we can't simply think of sex as a function of biology. We don't have sex simply because we're animals driven by hardwired biological urges that we cannot understand. Sex is both a physical experience but also the expression of our hearts. In other words, the mysteries of sex are more mysteries of our hearts than mysteries of our bodies. Because sex obviously involves biology, it's important to be alert to physical conditions that can contribute to sexual problems. And so there are a number of these listed that could create problems, and obviously you would want to address those, but it is not first biology. It is first an expression of our hearts. And then second, the quality of our relational intimacy will shape our sexual intimacy. When we don't connect well on the inside, we aren't likely to connect well on the outside. Lack of intimacy in other areas of marriage will result in problems of sexual intimacy. As many wives have tried to instruct their husbands, sex begins in the kitchen. In other words, good sex doesn't just happen in the bedroom. The foundation for it is built with loving, caring interactions in every other room of the house. So let me stop there and make some application of that. I've made the, tried to make the case, and it's being reinforced here that good sex is based on good relationship. And so this thinking of the intimate relationship that a husband and wife have together as more than the bedroom is the holistic way that we need to see our relationships. Now men men tend to focus in on the bedroom and not and not the other areas of relationship. Men have a unique ability that the women do not do to have to separate the sex from the relationship. Not completely. It's important for both. But it follows that it would be more important for the women because the woman is the more uh, relational gender. And so the man can go from an argument to sex. A woman has a harder time doing that. And so men, if you wonder why there are issues in the sexual relationship, you need to look at that more holistic context of intimacy that you have or don't have. And take into account some differences between men and women. Let me give you just just a, a few differences between male and female as it relates to their approach toward the physical relationship. One, men tend to be stimulated by sight and women by touch. Men by sight, women by touch. Now, both go both ways, but we're talking about which one does more of of the other. And men are much more sight and women are much more touch. That's why the pornography sites are dominated by men. That's why that is such a danger for we men. Men are stimulated by sight more than touch. Women touch more than sight. A second difference is this. Men uh, are more like microwaves and women are more like ovens. Man can be ready to go pretty quickly, is what that means. And the woman takes a while in order to be uh, brought to the point of sexual interest. And then another difference, and again, these are general differences, is for men, sex is to be more rather than than less. Why is my microphone doing that? More rather than less. And so in all of that, if we're going to understand one another, we need to understand those differences between each other. And to be, have an honest relationship where we can talk about those. Men, you might jot down 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. And it says there that we are to live with our wives according to knowledge live with our wives in a way that considers what they are. And so things like I've laid out here are part of that consideration, are part of that knowledge bank that we're to have about our wives as we approach all aspects of our relationship, but the sexual relationship in particular. And so unlike the world's approach to the sexual relationship, it is not the casual hookup, but rather it's to be the expression of, a relationship that is emulating the character of God in the safety and security that comes from the love and acceptance and understanding that God gives to us. And then when that happens, the man and the woman are brought together in the physical relationship and its expression of complete unity, emotional unity and then in spiritual unity, but also physical unity as well. And that complete unity is something that emulates the character of God. So at the beginning, I said, we can readily see how character qualities of God will be manifest in our relationship on things like communication or things like conflict resolution. But now I hope you can see that these character qualities of God and emulating Christ in our relationships applies even to the sexual gift that God has given to to marriage. Now, there's some very good and helpful homework then for you to do this week on that. And this homework, unlike the homework you've had previously, where you've had an individual section to do and then you've had a couple section to do, this one is all the couples do this together. So couples, I encourage you to get an hour or two away together so that you can do that and benefit from it, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to examine principles from your word that apply to our marriages or would-be marriages in the future. And Lord, we thank you that your word is indeed this lamp to our feet and light to our path. And that there is, there is no subject that you have left untouched, either in precept or in principle, to guide us in what you've called us to do. You are the one who has created marriage. You are the one who has created sex within marriage. And you have told us in your word your purposes for that. And you have given us the principles for how it's to be carried out in the context of an intimate relationship with one another. We thank you that you are the God of relationship. That for all eternity you have been in intimate relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Jesus has called his church into relationship with him as his bride. And in those principles, we see how we are to emulate the character of our God, the character of our Savior Christ in our marriage relationship. And then in turn, that issues forth in our physical relationship. I pray, Lord, that couples here would for the first time perhaps be implementing that kind of an approach toward their physical relationship. As with all things, As we live in a fallen and distorted world, the perspective that your word gives us is diametrically opposed to that of the world. Oh, Lord, help us to resist what the world tells us about your good gift that has been perverted. And help us to use it, help us to to cherish it, and help us to pursue it in the way and with the spouse that you have given to us. We ask you to go with us this week as we do our homework as we try to implement the things that we have learned and grant us safety until we return next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.